he asked his chief counsel what would be a good way to do that. The suggestion is for the king to put his own robe on Mordecai. And Xerxes likes this idea and orders exactly that to be done. He has his own robe brought up. Here in our story, the father cries out, quick, bring the best robe and put it on my son. Or the New English, New English translation captures it perfectly. He wants his best robe brought out and put on his son. And I cited the Esther story to provide some context because this action of putting a robe on someone is so has so little in common with our culture. It's difficult without proper background information to really grasp the magnificence of what the father is doing. And for those of us who have been here, this is our sixth week in the parable of the prodigal son. We have about six more weeks to go to get through it. And we've been discovering in all of this time that as we dive into the details and cultural context of the story Jesus is telling, this is not the Sunday school story we thought we learned so well when we were younger. In fact, I think this is the greatest life-changing parable Jesus ever told. This, is, this, to me, is the watershed moment of all of Christ's parabolic teachings as he explains to the religious leaders who thought they knew God so well, well, actually, God's not like that at all. This is what God is like, and then he launches into this parable of lost things. And as it comes to this, the lost sons, it's just, it's, it's incredible and life-changing. So this father here is not giving the son clothes because he doesn't have any clothes on. He's honoring the son. He's bringing honor to the son who rejected relationship. The father has done everything to reach his son. We've seen that he suffered great shame and humiliation. Figuratively, he gave his own life to find his son. And now he is honoring this son who rejected relationships with him. He is also protecting the son by giving him the robe. See, the father knows all too well the humiliation and shame that awaits his son from the village. So before too many people can glimpse him, barefoot and in rags, he orders the servants to quickly dress his son in his best robe. In so doing, what the father is doing, he's notifying the servants and the villagers that are around that this is a son. This is not a servant. This is not an outcast. This is my son. And so later when he throws a feast and all the villagers show up at the feast and the people see his son dressed in the father's own best robe, they will respect him too. They will have to lay aside their own disgust with him and accept him. Remember, the entire village knew what happened when the son did what he did, the grotesque violation and betrayal of his father by asking for his money. And they know that, and so anyone who did it, remember we talked about the Kazaza ceremony, the cutting off ceremony, now that they see the son in his father's robes, they can't enact the cutting off ceremony. The father's love is also reconciling the son to community. And there's an incredibly somber warning here, I think. For we are often quick to exclude and excommunicate and shame and humiliate brothers and sisters who we don't think are living up to the standards of Christianity. Perhaps we would do well to not reject people that God does not reject. And then the Father says, put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet. So likewise, shoes are an integral part of this reconciliation. The Middle Eastern Biblical scholar Kenneth Bailey points out, slaves go barefoot, sons wear shoes. And so by putting shoes back onto his son, he is saying, this is my son. This is my son. And the ring that he's giving could be the signet ring of the house. So remember, those of you that remember, those of you that have been reading through the Bible this year, like you're supposed to be. 
Um,
gives up his own life at running his total shame, embraces him, he kisses him, which we learn in that culture meant forgiveness before the sun set. So when the son finally said, Father, I have sinned, it was in response to the beautiful salvation that the son had been given. It did not earn him something. And that's one of the big misses in this parable that continues to keep us in our peace with God. He also does not say this. We're going to talk about this for a bit today. Now that you're cleaned up, let's make sure this bit of ugliness never happens again. <laughs> let's set some rules and you can promise me good behavior from now on. Then we will talk about a celebration. Nope, it's not there. It's not in the power. Instead, Father just throws a feast. A huge feast. We're going to see how big that is in a second. In short, we just have nothing but amazing grace. Which is the Bible. That's the biblical narrative. Amazing grace. Of course, this is offensive to us. Because we want the conditions. We want un we want qualified forgiveness. We want the promise of no more bad behavior. This is why Jesus himself said, don't let me stumble you. And Paul said, don't let the cross be a stumbling block. But it is. We stumble over it. Right? We want that. I mean, in my own family, you know, I've got almost a 21-year-old, a teenage 17-year-old. You know how many times over the years I said, yeah, I don't want to hear sorry anymore. I just want to stop. And if you said the same thing, I think I've even said that to my wife. Shame on me. But that's how we do relationships, right? That's how we do relationships. That's not how God but we want God to validate us. We want him to validate our appeasement way of living. Because appeasement theology is basically self-worship. This is what happened at the beginning of time. God said, Adam and Eve, why don't you just worship me, and I'll take care of everything. And they said, no, we're more into what we can do. And so they did it their way. And ever since, we've been worshiping ourselves. We want to be in control. Like Dave was talking about early on, control is that great lie that we all want into. If we do the right thing, where we control what God does for us. No. No. Rich is one of the best Christians I know. And he woke up one day with pancreatic cancer. We're not in control at all. That's the human lie. So we we turn God in our image, because we're not going to worship ourselves, right? That would be grotesque to put a picture of ourselves on. Well, some people do probably. Not, not us. And, um, but that would be grotesque. So what we do is we just make God look like us. And then we can worship ourselves through the back door. And it's really dangerous So basically, we can't handle this God. The, the, the religious Pharisees, the religious leaders, sorry, I don't like to use the word Pharisees, the religious leaders that were listening to this story, I love the beginning of the story, sinners were coming to Jesus. But the religious leaders were just furious at him. Because we can't handle this God. It's like, you know, remember the few good men, Jack Nicholson? We can't handle this. We can't handle this God. We can't. This is why Bono says that's why that's part of the reason I showed the opening video. We tell people love is a higher law, and we ask them to enter, but then we make them crawl. Or as my favorite theologian says, Kevin, we make the house of forgiveness into a penitentiary. Hmm. I bet you've been a victim of that, and I bet you've also done it. I've been both victim of that and a good prison. We do it in our personal lives, and we damage our own personal relationships, and we do it in our Christian lives, and we damage or prevent relationships between people and God. Because we can't handle this God that loves us. 
So we have creative doctrines and theologies that make them look a lot more like us and a lot less like the God Jesus revealed. And I think I'm beginning to understand. There's that final quote that I think I'm supposed to be here. There. Okay. And I think I'm beginning to understand a little more clearly why we do this after 52 years on this earth. All these years. This is where it gets offensive. But I'm, I'm talking mostly to myself, so if you're offended, you're, I'm offended too. Um, the gospel's like that. Don't let the cross scan the Bible. So maybe you've heard some people say this. Maybe you said this yourself. I know I've said this. I've said this in personal relationships, conversations. I've said it from puppets in the past. I've said this a lot. We speak about God's love as though it were somehow less than what real Christianity is all about. And we point to things like holiness and righteousness. And we talk about a balance of God's love and God's truth. And that's a big one. We, we, we use this image. I often use this illustration of, of a, of a of what, what is this? A, uh, scale thing. Of a scale. Where God's love and God's truth have to balance out or we're, we're misrepresenting God. Another one of my famous illustrations, famous, not mine, it's not famous, my favorite illustrations <laughs> is the candy cane. Where the whole thing is a candy cane, but the red would be God's truth and the white would be God's love and have to balance it out. Here's problem with these, and, and, and this has only something the Holy Spirit has been doing in the last 10 years of my life, and it took a long time for him to get me to just say, to stop arguing and just be humble enough to listen. Here's a couple issues. First of all, these ideas suggest God's love is not true. And they suggest God's love is not holy or righteous. And yet we've looked at this before. Righteousness in Scripture, this beautiful, amazing, wonderful word of God that was written by Hebrews, not by Greeks. That's part of our problem in understanding. Righteousness means right relationship. It's not a code of ethics. And it's not a moral law. That's why God is only righteous and no one else. Because he is in perfect relationship with his creation. Even when we walked away, he died for us. Right? When Paul said, yeah, he might even die for a friend, but he's dying for an enemy. This is why God is perfectly righteous. So to suggest his love and his righteousness are two different things. There's issues there. And secondly, to talk like this, and, and here's, if you've been coming to Cana for any length of time, The next two paragraphs I really want you to hear. Please, because for some reason people don't hear them. You can tell by the way I get accused of things or argued about things. I really want you to hear this, but if you're hearing it for the first time, you're going to be offended. But hopefully in that way that brings you to God like you've never been with God before. To talk like this, these issues that I talked about, is an indication that we either have never come face to face with God's love, or if we did, it was far too terrifying for us. For God's love, when truly encountered, not man's interpretation of God's love, God's love, when truly encountered, has only two responses. Fall on your face, 
and you confess you are not worthy, or you run as fast and as far away to the safety of doctrines and theologies that are easily defined by our own parameters and a God who is far easier to appease with moral living, correct beliefs, and strict obedience to external laws. That's it. Because <coughs> to encounter God's love is the most terrifying thing that we can ever do. See, let me build this up further. We love to talk about God's judgment and argue that if all we talk about is God's love, we're only giving half the picture. Really? Really? That makes it seem that God is a God of love sometimes and a God of hate sometimes. That's not the God of the Bible. If his judgment comes out of hate, then it's not the God of the Bible. That's us. We exercise judgment because we God's exercising judgment because of hate and not love, then it's not, it's not Jesus Christ. It's not the God of the Bible. See, if you listen closely to all the things we say that I've said in the past that God is so angry about, they are usually the external things those of us preaching his judgment never do. So, of course, we can rant and rave about God's judgment because we imagine ourselves safe. Of course he hates them. It's not us. Of course he hates them. Look what they're doing. And then you go there and you listen to them and you find out, oh, of course he hates us because we're not them. This is why righteous anger really shouldn't be part of any kind of Christian experience because we're not God. God exercises righteous anger perfectly. And that's offensive to us. See, here's what's offensive about God's righteous anger by the church as well. He holds both your seatbelt. Or I should just walk off your seatbelt for this one. See, last Sunday, uh, actually two Sundays ago now, last Sunday we took a break from our series so we could talk about it. See that guy that hate put in a 32nd story hotel room with an arsenal of death? Oh, I had righteous anger. I hate that guy. With a passion. In fact, as a, a man who professionally teaches people about God's love, I was so mad he killed himself because I don't want to go. Here's the defensive part. That's not righteous anger. Oh, God hated violence he visited on those people. God loved that man. God died for that man. Now there's a theology that when that's so offensive to you, you can run to. That God only loves some of us. I get where that theology came from. There are times in my life I embrace that theology because of situations like Las Vegas. God loves someone like that. And the way Christians spoke after Vegas, you might think God sanctions hate. No. But a God who loves like Jesus revealed, here's the problem. No one's safe from that judgment. No one. I don't care how long you've been a Christian. 
If we can come face to face with him and not feel judged instantly, then I don't think we have ever come face to face with God. And we have certainly not grasped the gospel of Jesus Christ. Nobody can stand in front of perfect love and not feel judged. Nobody. For this love is so far from who we are and how we live and what we do. It is as clear and complete a judgment that could ever be passed on anyone and everyone. To see this love and to know we were created in his image is to know instantly that we have cracked that image to smithereens and we can't fix it. And that is terrifying. And that's why when St. Paul said there's no one righteous, that didn't need to get turned into a doctrine or a theology or this offensive thing that issues from the pulpit. It's just true. No one is righteous. Because we don't love perfectly. And here's what's doubly terrifying. The realization that when we are honest with ourselves, we don't even want to be fixed. Because we don't want to love like I don't want to love that guy. I don't. Some of you have come to some of my soccer games this fall. Thank God you sit on the other side of the stadium because if you could hear the way I hate the refs, <laughs> you'd be like, is that David? <laughs> so the other day, this is a classic. <laughs> so my assistant coach, he's there, and I was <laughs> just laying into a ref. And he turns to all, all the girls on the team, he goes, that's Pastor David. <laughs> oh boy. Yes, it was. That's okay. God loves me. I've never not been a lost son. That's what we have to remember. We've always been. He found us. We didn't find ourselves. The idea that we find ourselves is what messes up Christianity. We suddenly forget. We forget everything God did for us. And that's why it took me three years of studying 1 Corinthians to be completely and utterly comfortable with the way we do things. And then I studied St. Paul and I realized, whoa, the very idea that you could be good enough in communion is exactly what St. Paul was warning us about. Don't you dare come to this table if you think you're working on So this is why we create much lesser gods who look more like us than our self-righteous hypocrisy and jealous fear-based anger. And we build these boxes of doctrinal worship that make us feel safe and good to be so blessed. Because this God, love, drives us to our knees. And as Americans, we're not big fans of that posture. That's what was beautiful about what Dave was saying this morning about back in the 1600s, everyone went to church in the colonies. That they needed that gospel story. They needed it. The law probably kept some of them going. <laughs> But there were people that just needed it. They knew they needed it. Now, 
you know, 250 years later, we're the most powerful nation on the earth. We don't like that posture of being on our knees. We don't like to be face down begging for mercy. Here's the best part of it, though. St. John himself, who when he had this incredible vision of the new Jerusalem and he saw Christ face to face, what did he do? He fell right on his face. But in that same instant, Jesus just reached out and picked him up. Jesus didn't say, you don't have to fall on your face. He just said, I've taken care of this, so I'll pick you up. It's so beautiful. It's the gospel. And that's the good news, gospel, good news. We are finally and completely free to confess we can't do it ourselves and can only receive what God has already done for us. That's the good news. This God revealed by Jesus judges, <coughs> forgives, reconciles, redeems, welcomes us home as his children, all in the same instant. And that's not the human way. The human way we will judge and then we will give time. Then we will talk about forgiveness and then we will talk about reconciliation. Not Jesus, not God. And this is what Jesus is revealing so clearly in this beautiful parable. The Son came face to face with pure, unadulterated, unconditional, unqualified love and realized he was not worthy. Remember, when he was at the edge of the village coming home, he was still as lost as ever. He was just coming home because he wanted to. But then he discovers love. And at that point, when he had no other plans to be made a servant, no other cards to play to pay off his debts, no brilliant ideas on how to repair the relationship he broke, he was finally able to receive what the Father had already done. And so the Father throws a First thing the father does, kill the fatty cat. Now, have you ever thought about this? Like, honestly, it's, it's hard to think about because we just go to the supermarket or the butchers, right? And we get a pound of meat or two pounds of ground a big party or three pounds of ground a big party. A fatty cat, even a small one, is going to give you 100 pounds of meat. Think about that. With all the other fixings, we're talking about a party for 200 people. In other words, Father invited the entire village for this celebration. To celebrate his finding of his youngest son. Now, killing a sheep would have been a norm. That would have been a relatively decent party. Killing a calf requires a very serious celebration. The Old Testament has a number of examples, but here's two of them. Then he ran to the herd and selected a choice tender calf and gave it to a servant who hurried to prepare it. I purposely didn't leave any of the names in there because I want to see who's been reading the Bible. We're going right back to the law now. And uh, come on, someone tell me Genesis 18. What's happening here? Say it again. Yes. Oh, Dorinda's gold star. Dorinda's been reading. This is when the three angels show up. The three angels, some, some. Some theologians think it was the Trinity. Others think it was just the angels. It doesn't matter. That's a serious reason to kill a fatty calf. And then another story. The woman had a fatty calf tub, which she pushed at once. She took some flour and kneaded it and baked bread without yeast. Then she said it before Solomon's men in A.E. I left Solomon there because this would have been a tough one. Just when King Saul shows up in the house. Somebody who was still in Genesis, she'd never look at the same thing. So this is a big reason to kill fatty calf. Now notice in these two examples, the calf is slaughtered to honor a person of esteem, and the hosts have been enriched by the presence of the honored guests. 
so they kill a fatted calf. Here in our story, the calf is killed to celebrate the presence of one who has brought great shame and humiliation to the host. One who has betrayed and broken the host's heart. One who is a failure and a disgrace.
going to take me a second. Um, the killing of the fatted calf. Indeed, as far as I'm concerned, and a few of the early church fathers too, the fatted calf is actually the Christ figure in this parable. Consider, what does a fatted calf do? It stands around in a stall with one purpose in life, to drop dead at a moment's notice in order that people can have a party. If that doesn't sound like the lamb slain from the foundations of the world, who dies in Jesus, and who comes finally to the supper of the lamb as the showpiece of his own wedding party, I don't know what does. The fatted calf proclaims that the party is what the Father's house is all about. Just as Jesus, the dead and risen bridegroom, proclaims that an eternal batch is what the universe is all about. Creation is not ultimately about religion or spirituality or morality or any other solemn subject. It's about God having a good time and just itching to share. Thank God he loves us. It is he, it is we, he 